Good afternoon and welcome to the Hamilton Wealth Partners podcast number 49 for October 2020. I'm Will Hamilton. At the start of every quarter, uh, what we do is we look at the the back at the quarter just uh, that's just been completed and give you an analysis of how we see things have gone. But we've, of course, we always sort of uh, are looking at positioning going forward. That's very, very important. The market fell in the first quarter of 2020 on the back of the virus. It rose in the second quarter on better news of the virus, and it was mixed in the third quarter, reflecting the mixed views on the outlook, outlook for the virus. Capital economics said just last week, while we continue to forecast that equity markets will make further ground in the next few years, the rapid increase in COVID-19 cases in Europe poses a downside risk to their projections. If equities continue their sell-off, it will be because the virus stages a true second wave towards the worst end of the fears. Now, if bonds sell off or the yield goes down, it will be because the virus for some reason comes swiftly under control. And that brings us to the issue of vaccines. A vaccine does provide hope. And whilst the positive outlook remains for a vaccine, this is going to provide a positive tone for risk-based assets. If a vaccine were widely available, we would expect further upside in risk-based assets. So this is very much being directed by the virus. Investors have ignored the growing gap that does exist between Main Street and Wall Street. The colossal levels of government stimulus that are pumped into economies make it really difficult to determine the true state of where an economy sits. And we believe a prudent approach, therefore, to asset allocation must remain for the foreseeable future. Like, for instance, one statistic that really had an impact on me was... um, Heptagon Capital in London, they recently pointed out that the US budget deficit's grown by over 200% from 4.9% of GDP in total to 15.1% of GDP in 12 months. So US authorities, have, they've adopted this do-what-it-take approach. In addition to ballooning debt levels, inflation expectations have now become a central part of commentary. This has been amplified by the US Federal Reserve, the Fed. It dumped its 2% inflation target a month ago in favour of an average target of 2% over time. So an average. It will in future allow inflation to to run above its stated goal of 2% for some time, as they said. This new policy was adopted at the Fed's annual symposium at Jackson Hole. And what it does there is it hosts central bankers, policymakers, academics and economists from around the world. Likewise, um, there's a renowned market strategist in Scotland called Russell Napier, and he pointed out in a July interview that many investors are so caught up in the current crisis, they're missing the long-term shift. So what Russell Napier says is the level of inflation, government interference and capital controls are going to be with us for years to come. What is more, his view is that the skills we've learned in the past 40 years are probably redundant because we've lived through a 40-year disinflationary period. So central to Napier's view of inflation is that the, the control of money supplies move from central bankers to politicians. And remember, politicians have very different goals and incentives compared to central bankers. So politicians need inflation to get rid of the current high debt levels. Remember, remember what motivates a politician is one thing, and that is being re-elected. So when we look at asset allocation, risk-based asset volatility at the speed we're currently experiencing means that tactical positioning is very difficult. We believe that equity markets did not represent long-term value back in March, especially when balancing for the risk. So as investing is a patience game, asset allocation has mainly been looking at tactical tilts on the margins 
towards areas that have stood out for being undervalued, such as emerging market equities, or as areas that looked oversold during the correction, such as A-REITs. Um, due to the defensive nature of the underlying assets and the difficulty, difficulty in replicating them, long-term opportunities in areas such as in infrastructure are also appearing. When we look at fixed income, the US Fed announced its new tilt and policy with respect to inflation. Long-dated bonds, predictably, they sold off. And uh, these are going to reflect inflation expectations. So the US 10-year Treasury yield, when we say sold off, so the yield got, went up from 0.55 to 0.75. And the Australian 10-year Treasury yield rose from 0.85 to 1%. US Treasury 20 years and 30-year yields rose even further still. So the yield curve, as they call it, has steepened. So the yield curve is from the short end to the long end. And that's a positive sign, not just for inflation, but also for growth. So as the quarter comes to an end, 10-year yields have drifted back down to levels similar to those at the end of the last quarter. So 0.65% uh, for the US 10-year bond and 0.85% for the 10-year Australian Treasury bond. Inflation expectations are going to continue to be important, but for now, it's the shorter-term shorter deflation expectations which will hold sway, particularly at the front end of the yield curve. So that, that shorter end. So while we see likelihood of an imminent rise in bond yields, at these interest rates levels, the risk reward of holding long bonds, it's not attractive and we continue to favour shorter maturities and or floating rate bonds. Credit spreads gradually narrowed during the quarter, this is in credit, and the hunt for yield should ensure that this continues, but it's important to stay with high quality issuers. We think that people are actually probably over-investing in risk we have not seen the true fallout yet from the recession. And this is what happens. It's lagged in credit. And no doubt some issuers will come under stress. Other developments to watch for over coming months is a shift in the Reserve Bank of Australia's stance on monetary policy and with respect to their program purchasing government bonds. Deputy RBA Governor DeBell, he's hinted at a further official rate cut from 0.25 to 0.1 and also to the shifting the target rate for three-year government bonds down to 0.1%. So it's possible the target rate for longer-dated bonds, otherwise known as the yield curve targeting, could also be announced, although we believe that this is less likely. Currency. We often don't talk about currency in our quarterly um, updates, but this has become very important. So most of the AUD moves during the last quarter reflected moves in the US dollar. So the US dollar affected the AUD, in other words, more so than the economic growth outlook or commodity prices or interest rate differentials. So the AUD strengthened gradually for most of the quarter from 69 to just above 74. And then it lost steam over the last month as weaker equity markets led to a stronger safe haven impetus for the US dollar. So at its current levels of about 71, the AUD is a little below what we consider fair value. So longer term, the Aussie dollar should strengthen as economies continue to open up and economic growth accelerates, but uncertainties of a possible second wave of the virus in the Northern Hemisphere as they go into their winter and the US election on November 3 suggests to us that we maintain our 50-50 hedge strategy. In equities, I think Hepticon Capital put it very, very well. They said last month in a note, blink and you would have missed it. So the S&P 500 made a new all-time nominal high on the 21st of August. They went out on to point out that it recorded a rapid sell-off in February, March, so it lost 34% in just 24 trading days, and then made an astounding recovery. It gained over 50% in value. 
So the S&P 500 in the United States is testing new highs during the quarter and the MSCI World Index climbed more than 50% since its March lows. So equities have benefited from the record levels of, that's the low levels of interest rates and the view that they're going to remain lower for longer. We have always advocated towards conviction-style management, This is, but this has been exacerbated over the last six months with a strong disparity between winners and losers, and there are very clear winners and losers out there. So the first point that stands out and brings us back to the Main Street versus Wall Street theme is that the women, winners have existed in areas such as technology, healthcare, logistics, but traditional retail, travel, property, they've generally underperformed. The second point is the geographic dispersion in returns. And that's shown in the table, um, looking at um, the, the various uh, markets. But whilst much has been written on the strong outperformance of what they call the fat man stocks, so that's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, Al Alphabet and NVIDIA, the importance of the fat man stocks as a group is because at one stage, even these seven stocks, they exceeded that the value of the, of the Japan's topics index, so the, the whole of the Japanese market. And you'll see in that table how much Australia has lagged and it's it's been substantial and it's due to its large index underweight to technology and it's overweight to banks. I've also put in there a chart that we've shown you quite a few times over the years and that's re-weighting the Australian index to the global um, indice levels. So we re-weight it. And uh, this is from Heuristic Investment Services. And we went into the crisis in 2020 at, at, at over 5% premium in our overall price earnings or PE basis. So it's the, without reweighting it. And it's now a 10% discount. So on an overall PE, it looks near the bottom of its 15-year range. But when I adjust it, it blows out the Australian market to a 55% premium. And that's the largest we've ever experienced by a long way. I cautioned at the beginning of 2020 that our equity market, which that's the domestic market, which then exceeded a 25% premium, was at an all-time high on this sector-adjusted basis. Through the market correction earlier this year, it retraced to just above its long-term average of 15%, and the long-term average is about 12, as you'll see on that chart. The scarcity or lack of choice of the IT sector in Australia at 4% versus 15% globally has pushed this premium right up again. So IT is at 2.4 times its global valuation, healthcare at 2.2 times, and industrials at two, two times. And these sectors have run, but they're also small sectors in Australia, so you have to attribute a higher weighting to them, hence why this is blown out. Um, and there's large sectors that have underperformed, you have to also therefore attribute a lower weighting, and that sort of exacerbates that further. Style's also been crucial. Growth has dramatically out, un, sorry, outperformed value. This may reverse, but we don't see it happening in the foreseeable future. What we do advocate, though, is truly active management of equities, you know, because the fact is if you're an index, you're going to get the underperformers as well as the outperformers. Property, um, performance has been varied on a sector basis, much like equities. With specialist sectors such as healthcare and industrial logistics, they've continued to outperform the traditional retail sectors and core office space. Residential housing, it's a surprise many pundits, with most states except for Victoria now seeing price declines, they've tapered off and market activity is rebounded. Limited net migration, this is a big concern though from a demand point of view. However, targeted government, government stimulus has been effective. What that's done is it's brought forward future demand and support of monetary policy alongside a banking system, which looks like extending um, repayment lifelines. That's going to support the market over the short term. So short term, this uh, has been supported. 
Listed A REITs, though, continue to show value on a relative base, basis to both equities and bonds. So with real yield and offer over bonds now sitting at over 6%, this sector is also marginally cheap on an historical basis when you look at listed valuations compared to book values and the market price to book value sitting at just under 1 compared to the long-term average of 1.2. So on an asset basis, it looks good value as well. Direct government support and mandatory tenant relief policies, they're limiting the number of forced sellers in the market. This is an area of focus going forward um, as support measures start winding back over the following quarters. Alternative assets. These asset classes have reduced volatility and enhanced returns in our portfolios. We're very, very pleased we've got them sitting in our portfolios. These investments are not appropriate for all clients. I need to stress that. Establishing allocations for each of these alternative asset classes under its own risk category has ensured client allocations for each are appropriate. And I think that's an important thing. And in hindsight, as I said, they've contributed to portfolio returns and they've dampened volatility and therefore they've reduced portfolio risk. We believe this is where the best, best risk adjusted returns may exist and positioning portfolio weightings over the next quarter or two, especially in the area of private equity, diversified credit and distressed assets, that's going to produce superior long-term returns. Investors must, however, understand the illiquidity of most of these assets. It's important to diversify within each asset class and a vintage-style approach to investing. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and vintage means different years. In summary, what should investors do? It's worth repeating that asset allocation is crucial and has been important in minimising the impact of the current crisis. It will be an even more vital factor going forward as centrist and protectionist policies and economies take hold. No one knows what will happen next or how this is going to play out. It's important to have a conservative strategy built around asset allocation and stick to the process. Understand also that the growing levels of government debt will burden economies for generations to come. If you've got any queries, please don't hesitate to contact either Ian Gillies, John Green or Kane Barano. I'm Will Hamilton and thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.